It has been 25 years since Justice Powell first suggested approval of the use of race to further an interest in student body diversity. We expect that 25 years from now, the use of racial preferences will no longer be necessary to further the interest that we approve today. We take the law school at its word that it would like nothing better than to find a race-neutral admissions formula and will terminate its race-conscious admissions program as soon as practicable. Today on Uncommon Law, it's been almost 20 years since Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, intentionally or not, set the affirmative action countdown in motion. The Supreme Court has just heard arguments that Harvard and UNC go too far in their use of race in admissions. Will the diversity rationale, the heart of affirmative action defenses since 1978, convince this staunchly conservative court? And while diversity has been the reason affirmative action has survived legal tests, was it ever even the best reason under the Constitution for affirmative action? Or have advocates been hamstrung by an argument that doesn't go far enough in explaining why they believe affirmative action is so important? Today, the conclusion to our four-part series, Are Race-Conscious Admissions Policies About to Fall? I'm your host, Matthew Schwartz, and this is Uncommon Law. The Supreme Court hearing arguments in two cases that could determine the fate of affirmative action in higher education. Some members of the conservative supermajority have signaled they are ready to overturn decades of precedent. Decades of legal precedent for affirmative action in higher education. The school's admissions programs violate equal protection principles, eliminate the promise of a colorblind society, and discriminate against Asian Americans. Now, remember how we got here. Edward Bloom is this man Edward who has Bloom brought many cases that very overwhelmingly has been behind some of the most high-profile Supreme Court cases of the last decade, including... This is the latest in a long string of cases led by Edward Bloom, a stockbroker turned activist who has spent the past 30 years of his life fighting to end the use of race in our nation's public policies. It is a passion. If you haven't heard episode three, it goes into detail about what drives Mr. Bloom. Now, when Bloom turned his sights to Harvard and UNC, his lawyers pointed to data that they said proves the schools discriminate against certain races, raising the bar for Asian Americans and whites. The academic achievement bar. While lowering it for everyone else. In essence, making it harder for Asians and whites to get accepted. And on October 31st of this year, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments. We will hear argument first this morning in case 21707. In which, after years of losing in the lower courts, Bloom's organization, Students for Fair Admissions, made their final plea at the court of last resort. Here's Students for Fair Admissions attorney. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Cameron Norris. Grutter assumed that race would only be a plus, but race is a minus for Asians a group that continues to face immense racial discrimination in this country. Asians should be getting into Harvard more than whites, but they don't because Harvard gives them significantly lower personal ratings. Harvard ranks Asians less likable, confident, and kind, even though the alumni who actually meet them disagree. The facts of this case have been disputed. Harvard says they don't discriminate against Asian students. 
they just have far more qualified applicants than they have room for. William Lee was Harvard's lead trial counsel in this case. He recounted to me how the dean of admissions explained it during trial. We have 45,000 applications. 15,000 of them are qualified. Our job is to take one out of 10. We're trying to assemble 1,600 young people who can educate each other. That's one of the reasons you just can't rank them by grade point and test scores from 1 to 45,000. Harvard crafts its class by taking lots of factors into account, not just grades and test scores. And yes, race is one of those factors, just as the court approved in the Michigan Law School case, Grutter versus Bollinger. But Students for Fair Admissions is asking the court to overturn Grutter and to find that diversity is not, in fact, a state interest compelling enough to justify the use of race under the Constitution. That's right. We're advocating for only one thing. Stop using race as an admissions factor. Why? Because race has no place in American life and law. Joining me to discuss the Harvard and UNC cases is Kimberly Robinson. I'm Kimberly Robinson, Bloomberg Law Supreme Court reporter. Who is one of a very small number of reporters with an actual full-term Supreme Court press pass and who was at the court for oral arguments. Yes. All five hours of them. He almost blacked out during those arguments. <laughs> it was, they were pretty long. Um, okay, so Kimberly, I have sort of a threshold question for you. Oh, goodness. So the Grutter Court was pretty clear that diversity is a compelling interest. Mm-hmm. Why is this a question that's even back before the Supreme Court now? We've had decades of precedent saying schools can use race. So why are we here? Well, what we see on the current Supreme Court is a real appetite among a majority of justices to reconsider those old precedents. You know, we have six conservative justices on the court. There are three liberal justices. There's only so much that they can do to really put on the brakes uh, if the conservative majority wants to reconsider these precedents that have been settled for decades. Okay, so a new conservative majority ready, perhaps even eager, to overturn settled precedent. Yes, And let's not forget Sandra Day O'Connor's 25-year countdown. Yeah, that's right. This was really a big concern for Justice Kavanaugh, who says, you know, maybe the 25 years isn't a hard deadline, but there's got to be some point at which we stop using race for this purpose. And his concern was really, like, when will we know? Is 25 years enough? Is 26, 30, 35 years? When will we know? Throughout arguments in both cases that day, the conservative justices peppered lawyers with questions about the logical endpoint of affirmative action. Here's Justice Brett Kavanaugh asking UNC's lawyer, Ryan Park, to provide some clarity over how strictly the court should read that 25-year pronouncement. Justice O'Connor, when she wrote the opinion in Grutter, indicated that these racial classifications are potentially dangerous and, and must have a logical endpoint. And instead of leaving it vague, the opinion didn't say uh, until you reach a point where you're satisfied that diversity has been achieved or something vague like that. It said 25 years. And so I want to hear how you address that part of the Grutter precedent. 
So, of course, we don't read the 25-year as some sort of strict expiration, and I don't think on its face it was structured as such. Uh, even Chief Justice Rehnquist in his dissent said this is not a, a fixed deadline. Well, Justice, Tom- the- Justice Thomas, in his separate opinion, referred to it as a holding. Justice Kennedy referred to it as a pronouncement. So, anyway, just to make sure the full picture is presented there. There wasn't a really clear answer to the question of when will it end. I mean, again, I think it comes back to this idea that O'Connor had is, you know, 25 years was sort of aspirational. And maybe she thought we'd be further along as a society with sort of getting rid of some of the more systemic problems that create this lack of diversity. But for the people that are arguing to support these programs, we're clearly not there. The two sides, conservative and liberal justices, are just so far apart on this issue. Well, as you've mentioned, it's a solidly conservative court. Was there any sort of unifying theme among those justices? So for conservatives, I think what stuck out to me is that they're very skeptical of the use of race for any purpose. They really wanted to know how far state institutions and universities have to go in using race-neutral criteria to try and get at this diversity. You know, what things must they do before they can turn to race? And I think this was a big concern of Justice Gorsuch, you know, who talked about could universities get to their diversity if they eliminated things like legacy admissions, admissions for donors who might, you know, put up a nice art museum on campus? Um, or what about getting rid of plus factors for squash players? Universities also have all kinds of other plus factors they use. Justice Neil Gorsuch. For squash players, we learned there are plus factors because those we need those too. And I guess I'm wondering, suppose a university, a wealthy university, could eliminate those preferences which tend to favor the children of wealthy white parents and achieve diversity without race consciousness. Would strict scrutiny require it to do so? He was really, really, really interested in squash players um, for some reason. For the conservative justices in particular, they're really focused on the fact that precedent requires schools do everything they can to achieve a diverse class without explicitly looking at someone's race. So if you cut out bonus points for squash players, that is, for wealthy white students, you could get more diversity without being so blunt about things. To many conservatives, any explicit use of race favoring one group over another feels like constitutionally prohibited discrimination. Here's Harvard's attorney, Seth Waxman, discussing the role of race in their admissions policies with Chief Justice John Roberts. Race for some highly qualified applicants can be the determinative factor just as being the, a, you know, an oboe player in a year in which the Harvard Radcliffe Orchestra needs an oboe player will yeah, be the tip. We did not fight a civil war about oboe players. We did fight a civil war to eliminate racial discrimination, and that's why it's a matter of, of, of considerable concern. I think whenever people tend to think about where Chief Justice Roberts is going to live in these affirmative action cases, everyone comes back to this line from an earlier case called Parents Involved, where Roberts said, 
the best way to stop discriminating on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. And that really, I think, sums up Justice Roberts' view of these these programs that are that are meant to help minorities. And I think that really puts him in a hard spot um, on this particular court. So we've seen Justice Roberts really embrace this idea of being the protector of the institution and the court's legitimacy. But he has such strong views about the use of race and how dangerous he thinks it can be um, that I wonder which one's going to win over in the end. And then there were some questions about the nature of diversity itself. I believe Justice Clarence Thomas asked about that. He said something to the effect of, what does diversity even mean? It means everything to everyone. I've heard the word uh, diversity quite a few times, and I don't have a clue what it means. And I think what he's getting at here is this idea that, of course, it's not just racial diversity that these schools are looking for. They're looking for geographical diversity. They're looking for diversity of interests. What they're really looking for is a diversity of ideas and experiences. And Justice Thomas seemed not to believe that diversity was so important that it can justify the government making racial distinctions. I didn't go to racially diverse schools, um, but there were educational benefits. When a parent sends a kid to college, they don't necessarily send them there to have fun or feel good or anything like that. They send them there to learn physics or chemistry or whatever they're studying. The justices and litigants spent so much time talking about diversity because 50 years ago, that's the rationale Justice Powell approved for affirmative action. And that's how the Supreme Court now looks at affirmative action, through the lens of diversity. So when you go into a courthouse, you have to talk about diversity. But some scholars are pushing back on that. They say it's not just about diversity. Justice Powell made a choice. Columbia University President Lee Bollinger. Powell's opinion said you could not use the original rationale of racial justice. Only the first, the benefits to education of diversity, grew to reinforce that. But in my view, that has been a mistake. Uh, Not a mistake to have that rationale, but a mistake to exclude the other rationale. Remember, the original rationale for affirmative action was to help minority students who had been at a disadvantage for so long. And Bollinger says, if you only talk about diversity, you're not having a complete conversation. But because that's the reasoning Justice Powell approved in the 70s, that's the argument that advocates have been left with in the courts. They can't talk about racial justice. Since Justice Powell's opinion, we have not been able to speak in these terms because of the fear that there would be litigation that would point it out and and say that now their policies are unconstitutional. So in a way, the debate has become about affirmative action less persuasive in speaking to the reality that many people feel, especially African-Americans, and that's been unfortunate. I think Thurgood Marshall was absolutely right that you just can't think about affirmative action without understanding 
the history of the United States, the ongoing presence of discrimination and the effects of past discrimination going forward in each generation. For it must be remembered that Negroes were deliberately excluded from public graduate and professional schools and thereby denied the opportunity to become doctors, lawyers, engineers, and the like. This is Thurgood Marshall presenting his opinion in the 1978 Baki case, the case we talked about in our first episode. There was no majority opinion in Baki, but four of the nine justices believed that remedying past discrimination was a compelling enough reason to justify the use of race in college admissions. The position of the Negro today in America is a tragic but inevitable consequence of centuries of unequal treatment measured by any benchmark of comfort or achievement. Meaningful equality remains a distant dream for the Negro. In light of the sorry history of discrimination and the devastating impact on the lives of our Negroes, bringing the Negro into the mainstream of American life, should be a state interest of the highest order. To fail to do so is to ensure that America will remain a divided society. I do not believe that the 14th Amendment requires us to accept that fate. It is an unreal kind of discussion that you're having if you exclude all that. And yet, that became the framework for higher education for decades after. I was in the Supreme Court when Baki was announced. I left the Supreme Court that day devastated uh, because for African Americans at the moment that Baki was decided, that decision was a loss. University of North Carolina law professor Ted Shaw says he was devastated because Powell's emphasis was on the importance of diversity rather than on the importance of remedying societal discrimination. Shaw says that turned the judicial rationale from helping minorities to being mostly for the benefit of white students. The diversity decision was based in the benefits of diversity that would flow to them by having some black and brown students there. But it wasn't the focal point on black and brown students any longer. What Powell's opinion did in Baki was analogous to what Hollywood did for years and years when it made films that purported to be about black and brown people. They were not the focal point of those films. It was white people who had the main roles. Uh, Example, Mississippi Burning, which was supposed to be about the FBI and Mississippi and Freedom Summer in 1964. Where does it come from, all this hatred? And the heroes of that movie were the FBI. Gene Hackman, the FBI agent. People down here feel some things are worth killing for. 
Uh, the FBI, as I've often said, was many things in 1964 in Mississippi, but they were not the heroes of the civil rights movement in Mississippi in Freedom Summer. It was black and brown people joined by white people from uh, outside of Mississippi who were the heroes. You know, if I was a Negro, I'd probably think the same way they do. If you were a Negro, nobody would give a damn what you thought. Powell was doing the same thing in the Baki case. And if black and brown people were the beneficiaries of that decision, and they were, I was, it was kind of a serendipitous occurrence. And that was problematic. In nearly five hours of oral argument in the Harvard and UNC cases, the phrase racial justice did not make an appearance. But those in favor of affirmative action did borrow a tactic from conservatives. They argued first principles. Bloomberg Law's Kimberly Robinson. We saw the liberal justices do something that we've seen them do quite a bit this term, which was play the game that conservatives are sort of playing. Conservatives really like to point to the original meaning of the Constitution, what it meant at the time that, you know, the people who were adopting these laws, what did they think that it meant? And it's a sort of way to restrain judges today. I believe conservatives call that originalist interpretation. Yeah, that's right. So now we see the liberal justices, particularly with the use of race and these Civil War era amendments, embrace that and say, look, these laws were passed at a time when you know, the federal governments were afraid that states were going to disadvantage newly freed slaves. And that's what the whole purpose of these amendments are. That's the purpose of the 14th Amendment is to help black citizens. And so, of course, affirmative action programs would be constitutional under the original meaning of the 14th Amendment. Justice Kagan. There's been very little discussion of what originalism suggests about this question. This is Justice Elena Kagan questioning Solicitor General Elizabeth Prelogger, who was arguing in favor of affirmative action. So I just want to ask, what would a committed originalist think about the kind of race consciousness that's at issue here? I think that an originalist would think that this is clearly consistent with the original understanding of the 14th Amendment. The universities have come forward with powerful evidence that surrounding the time of... Did the conservative justices seem to be open to that sort of argument? No. One thing we're learning as the current Supreme Court really leans more heavily on history is that history is really malleable. There was a lot of discussion about what exactly was the Freeman's Bureau trying to do? Did it help slaves? Did it help black citizens who were not descendants of slaves? Right. So we just sort of got into a mush of what actually the 14th Amendment really meant. I think, too, the liberal justices really wanted to make more of a pragmatic argument to say, look at the devastation that this will cause for Black, Latino, and Native American students in university admissions if universities are not allowed to use race explicitly in the admissions process, and kind of spinning out what the effects would that be. Sandra Day O'Connor wrote in Gruder that 25 years from now, The court expects that the use of racial preferences will no longer be necessary to achieve diversity on college campuses. It's been nearly that long 
is the use of race still necessary? I just would push against the premises of the question. Once again, University of Michigan law professor Michelle Adams. It's kind of like if you're playing on the other side's end of their field, right? I would just ask the question, uh, is it appropriate for institutions of higher learning, particularly public institutions that take the tax dollars of all of the people of the state to have classes that do not reflect the population of that state? When we know that these institutions, particularly highly selective ones like the University of Michigan, provide extraordinary amounts of benefits to their graduates. I think that that's wrong. If you want me to behave as a lawyer and make the narrow arguments that I would make if I was engaged in oral argument, then I can do that. Although I think that ultimately it won't matter because I think the court's going to overturn Grutter versus Bollinger. But I think that it's important to push back against the premises of that because we've gone down this road so far away from forgetting what I believe to be first principles that we then get involved in a very narrow conversation about the use of race. And the first principles you're referring to? What were the original purposes of the 14th Amendment? How did the world come to look the way it looks today? What is systemic racism? Why has it been such a difficult thing to eradicate from our politics and from our society? And what are the things we can do to try to change that? I don't think we can have this kind of conversation about affirmative action without having a long conversation about that history. Race has no place in American life and law. Once again, Ed Bloom. The Constitution, our civil rights laws, all point to the same theme. An individual's race should not be used to help him or harm him in his life's endeavors. Simple. That holds society together. Without that, the fabric that holds this multiracial, multiethnic nation together will continue to fray. I don't know what's in people's hearts. I know what they do. I only can look at what they do and what they say. I don't agree with the position that he's taken in these cases and the litigation that he's attempted to foment. We only have to go back to the summer of 2020. Overnight, Minneapolis on fire. After some protests turned into riots. A pivotal moment in a long struggle for racial justice. And to take the position that race is no longer a relevant factor in American society is just not a reality-based comment. Now you could say that, you know, he in good faith believes that there shouldn't be any race consciousness of any kind. Once again, Ted Shaw. But that leads me to believe that he's somebody who is tone deaf when it comes to the inequality that still exists in this country along lines of race. Bloom is effectively using the Asian community as pawns to mask an anti-Black and anti-Latino agenda. We'll have more after the break. I traveled a long way to talk to Mr. Bloom, a plane ride to Maine, a two-hour drive up the coast, and I wanted to make sure I had a real heart-to-heart with him about race in America and why he's so devoted to his cause. 
Okay, I'm. this is possibly going to come across as an unfair characterization to you, but lots of people... Go ahead. ...characterize this work that you're doing as an organized attack on equality, an attempt to keep minorities down. You're painted as a villain in the battle for civil rights. When people tell the story of our modern attempts to level the playing field, they often say things like, but one man stands in our way. <laughs> is, is this not demoralizing? Well, you know, it's, every lawsuit needs a villain. Does this demoralize me? No, it doesn't demoralize me. Is yours, is Students for Fair Admissions, a simplistic vision of equality, one that doesn't take into account all of the structural racism of minorities being kept down over decades, hundreds of years, that have left them on an unequal playing field. I guess I don't see your insistence on refusing to look at race when race has been such a central factor in why people are socioeconomically struggling. Has there been invidious discrimination in this country? Absolutely. Has there been horrific anti-Semitism? Absolutely. Do we still have homophobic people in this country? Absolutely. Every nation, every society will have bigots, will have anti-Semites, will have homophobes, but you cannot remedy those characteristics by using new racial classifications and preferences or treating Jews with special regard. Everyone must be judged upon who they are as an individual, not their membership in a race or religion or sexual orientation group. I'm wondering if you have any empathy for a poor African-American child who looks at race-based affirmative action policies as a lifeline, a way for him to find a better life, a way for him to enter university. What would you say to a kid like that who sees affirmative action as a lifeline and you're trying to take it away? I think a lot of African-American kids who go to Harvard and Stanford and other universities complain that people have said to me, well, the only reason you're here is because you're a certain race. You're African-American. That's a stigma that these kids carry around with them. And this is a well-documented phenomena. Uh, if you ask me, and I think if you ask those kids, they want to be accepted to colleges and universities based upon their abilities, based upon their activities, not based upon the fact that they have a certain skin color that that university is now preferring. Let's look at it from the other side. Universities voluntarily took it upon themselves to implement these policies, to try to fix a world that they saw as broken. And this reminds me of the Jewish principle of tikkun olam, to repair the world. It seems to me like universities are trying in their own way to practice tikkun olam, to try to repair the world. One could argue that they're working within the spirit of the Equal Protection Clause, trying to lift people up 
and give everyone opportunities who may not have had opportunities in the past. Why won't you let the universities practice Takun alum? Why won't you let them try to repair the world? They're not fixing it. They're breaking it. I will give the higher education establishment in this country the benefit of the doubt. I know their hearts are in the right place. I know what they are trying to remedy from Jim Crow, slavery, and all the other kinds of bigotry that has existed against racial minorities in this country. But they are not accomplishing what they want to accomplish. What they are doing is fraying the fabric that holds a campus together. They're trying to fix something that they perceive as broken, but what they're actually doing is making it worse. The High Court is expected to rule on the constitutionality of affirmative action by the end of June. If, as expected, racial preferences fall, the first students after the decision to be admitted to college would graduate about 25 years after Sandra Day O'Connor set that 25-year countdown in motion. Uncommon Law is hosted and produced by me, Matthew Schwartz. I also mixed and sound designed this episode. My editor, Josh Block, is the executive producer for video and podcasts here at Bloomberg Industry Group. Thanks to Tiana Headley for her reporting. Our cover art is by Jonathan Hortarte. And an additional thank you to Andrew Satter, Tom Taylor, and Cheska Antonelli. For more coverage of affirmative action and the Supreme Court, go to news.bloomberglaw.com. If you like Uncommon Law, please share it with a friend and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It really helps to spread the word. We're working hard on our next Uncommon Law series, and we'll see you back right here in just a few months. One last thing. A lot of people see Ed Bloom as a bad guy. But in talking to him, I unearthed something that he hasn't really talked about before, and I didn't have a place to put it in the podcast, but I wanted you to hear it because it it just might change your perception of what's in the heart of Mr. Bloom. A lot of people, when they found out I was going to talk to this guy, said to me, why can't he do something good with his time and with his money? Why does he have to fight against affirmative action? Why can't he help people? So that is what I asked him. Couldn't you work on helping lift up people, lift up minorities who don't have the opportunities, work towards building more educational opportunities in socioeconomically depressed school systems, things like that? Have you ever considered that? Uh, At this point, in our three-hour interview... I'm looking for a picture. Okay. Um, Ed Bloom started rummaging through his desk to show me a picture. He came back with a photo of school officials holding an oversized check for a million dollars signed by Ed Bloom. 
it was the largest donation in the school's history. One of the most gratifying things I've ever done was to assume the trusteeship of a charitable foundation. I have never been happier giving money away than to the Lamar Institute of Technology. Um, that is a minority-serving institution. Uh, we would have given money to Lamar, whether it had been a minority-serving institution or not. But I am deeply engaged in the movement to shift significant public resources out of baccalaureate programs into community college programs. And that's an endeavor that I've never talked about before, but since you asked, now you know. Those nine justices in Washington can be hard to keep track of. That's where we come in. On our podcast, Cases and Controversies, we give you a week-by-week accounting of the Supreme Court, the filings, the arguments, the opinions, and much, much more. Check in on Fridays with Bloomberg Law's Cases and Controversies to find out what's coming up on the horizon of the Supreme Court. Download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.